when uh, so in thinking about what to tell you today to talk I mostly didn't have any thoughts and uh, it's kind of delicious not to have a lot of thoughts though maybe now you're alarmed <laughs> uh oh <laughs> That's not good. This is like an important part of the day. It's supposed to be an important, profound talk. Now Gil doesn't have any thoughts. But that's good, not to have any, particularly. But uh, it did make me, uh, remind me of two stories. One is a story of Suzuki Roshi that was told to me by um, a Japanese Pure Land priest. In Japan, there's these different sects of Buddhism. And, and back in the old days, until about 20 years ago, or five years ago, still, they hardly met each other, hardly had any contact with each other, different sects of Buddhism. So this, so Suzuki Roshi came to Japantown, was the priest for the Zen temple there. And Reverend Ogui was a very young, pure land Buddhist priest who'd come from Japan and he didn't know any English, and um, to be the, the priest minister at the pure land temple nearby. And he started going over to the Zen temple to sit zazen, sit meditation with Suzuki Roshi. And so kind of unusual thing to do this cross-pollination thing. And after doing that for, I don't know how long, a couple of years or something, Suzuki Roshi asked Reverend Ogui to give the Dharma talk one day, one Saturday morning at the Zen temple. And Ogui said, Reverend Ogui said, uh, I, I, my English is not good enough, I can't. The next time Reverend Ogui came for a Dharma talk that Suzuki Roshi was giving, this is the talk he heard. Today is today. <laughs> today is not tomorrow. Tomorrow is not today. Yesterday is not today. <laughs> today is not yesterday. Today is today. It was a Dharma talk in five words. It required only five words to give the talk. <clears throat> He thought he didn't speak enough English to give a talk. I, I tried my best last time I gave a talk to limit it to one word, but I didn't get away with that. Here. Mm-hmm. And there's another beautiful story that uh, actually touches me. And I, and I heard it I heard it from Trudy Goodman, the teacher in L.A., who was there at the event. Apparently, it was in Vietnam, 
I don't know when it was, in the 80s or something, 90s, there was a large Buddhist conference in Vietnam. Buddhist teachers from all over Asia came. Um, different monks, priests, teachers from different lineages and came. Big uh, convocation. And representing Cambodia was Mahagusananda. who was this... Um, living in Thailand during the, during the Pol Pot era. So he survived. And when, because he survived, Pol Pot, uh, when he went back to Cambodia after the liberation of Cambodia, uh, he became the, the, he was one of the last monks standing, so he became the, the grand patriarch of Cambodian Buddhism. And it turned out he's kind of a Gandhi-ish person, beautiful man. I met him and um, dedicated to nonviolence and compassion and kindness and Sweet man, gentleman, and so he was supposed to give the the talk. <clears throat> so Mahagosananda, this old man. <clears throat> was going to give the keynote speech, I think, for this big convention of all these Buddhist dignitaries from all over Asia. And he got up on stage in front of everyone and he started to conjugate the word to be in French. Je suis, tu es, nous être continued like that to different and somehow the way he said it I am you are we are people started crying quite something huh you think you'd have something more profound to say in the presence of all these august Buddhist teachers who have spent years studying the sutras. But, you know, again, there's something very significant about just to be, just to be here, the present moment, in the simplicity of it. And the simplicity of the present moment is often what is the most difficult thing to discover because we complicate our life so quickly with plans, agendas, fears, judgments, commentary, identities, so many things. Many years ago I I went to visit a friend of mine who had a daughter who was maybe two or something at a time. She was just beginning to speak a little bit. And uh, we were all standing around in the room and I asked her, who's that? And I pointed to her father and she said something like, Daddy, who's that? And I pointed to her mother and she said, Mommy. And I pointed to a few other people there and she knew their names, I guess. 
And then I pointed to her and said, who's that? And she said, I am. So I'm a little bit slow. So I said again, who's that? Because I wanted her name, right? (laughs) 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 And she said, I am. And since I can be really dense, I asked again. And then she, this two-year-old girl, she lifted herself up really tall (laughs) and looked at me directly and kind of sternly said, I am. I remembered that's what God said in the Bible I am that I am <laughs> the burning bush and I said okay <laughs> took a while and so again the s- simplicity the strength of that the dignity of that the valuing of that of not needing to be somebody for someone I am say a name or I am a profession or I am my role or I am you know, so many of us see ourselves through the filter of, you know, we fill in the blank. You know, I am, I am a father, I'm a mother, I'm a child. I am <clears throat> a psychological basket case. <laughs> I am, you know, <clears throat> you know, all these things. And then we carry around, some of us have this huge backpack of you know, things we carry, we really pull out and fill in, you know. The moment's notice, because you heaven forbid that it stays blank. Heaven forbid that you just become, I am. <clears throat> when I was a student at the San Francisco Zen Center, one, one day there was a Dharma talk, a teacher there, about uh, Bodhidharma coming to China. It's a famous story. Some of you might not know it, but I'll tell you. So Bodhidharma was this Indian monk who was, the legend says, he brought Zen to China. And uh, when he first came to China, he had an audience with the emperor. Now the emperor of China is like, you know, it's a pretty important person. And um, <clears throat> and the emperor was happy to see this monk from India. And, and so the emperor, who had, uh, was a Buddhist emperor, and he built a lot of temples, um, said to Bodhidharma, um, you know, I've built a lot of temples. Uh, how much merit is, do I have gotten from all these temple building that I did? And Bodhidharma looked at him and said, no merit to the emperor so that must have gotten the emperor's attention and so the emperor said um, what's the you know kind of wanted to push further what's this monk have he said what's the what's the highest teaching or the most sacred teaching what's the the highest teaching of the holy truths of the holy dharma and Bodhidharma said nothing holy everything's empty Here's a devout emperor, right? Nothing holy. I built all these temples. Nothing holy. 
And so then um, the emperor asked him, who are you? <laughs> You're talking to me this way, who are you? And Bodhidharma said, I don't know. And then Bodhidharma left, <laughs> just walked out. And he said he crossed the Yangtze River and he went up and lived in a cave for nine years where he sat in meditation for nine years. He's kind of a hermit. So in this Dharma talk at Zen Center, the story was told. But the story somehow got to me in a nice way, a powerful way. And it, I became kind of taken over by the question... Why? Why did Bodhidharma sit there for nine years? Why was he? And you know, it wasn't like, I, and I wasn't looking for an answer. I was going to, why? What was that about? What is that? And I was so taken by this question that I went directly to the meditation hall where <clears throat> no one was there. I sat there for a few hours by myself. It was this question, why? But it wasn't like, again, I wasn't looking for an answer. It's like, it was like suddenly the why was almost like an answer. The why was almost like I am. The why was almost like um, wow. Wow. It was kind of like what is it to be alive? What is it to be here in this world? What is it to just to be present? What is you know, it's kind of a miracle that anything exists. Have you ever wondered about why any of this is? Mm -hmm. I mean, look around. I mean, why this? If you want, if you, if if you haven't seen a miracle, experienced a miracle recently, take a breath. Just the fact that you breathe is a miracle. But it's not so often that we feel the miraculous, the wonder, wonder of this life, of being present, that, that, that the amazement that anything is at all. Occasionally we do. <clears throat> Occasionally we encounter something, a beautiful sunset at the beach, or the feeling after a near accident on the freeway or Yosemite looking up at Half Dome, or in a cathedral of redwood trees perhaps. Or there, there are times. Just being alive, just being present, just kind of where <clears throat> the usual chatter and preoccupations of the mind fall away. For all the stories we're telling ourselves, reliving, all the anxiety that we're spinning out and churning away, all the problem solvings we're trying to solve and fix, all the ways we're trying to prove ourselves or defend ourselves or hide ourselves or close ourselves down. We stop, it stops. And so for me, sitting at, you know, the why did Bodhidharma sit there? It was kind of like, More like that, wow. And all I could do, I mean, the only thing that made sense to do was to go in the meditation hall and sit. Sit with that, wow, why? 
Classically, uh, meditation practice is kind of like a journey. It's a path that unfolds. So it's not just simply the wow of the present moment. But it's also, as we stay, as we get in the present moment, as we relax our attachments, our concerns, as we learn to let drop some of our thinking we do and relax, calm down, there is kind of an unfolding. And one of the classic ways of describing that unfolding is that we are moving from coarser states of mind to more calmer states of mind. More more busy, active minds to minds that are more peaceful. And so, uh, you know, some of you, I think, at times during this retreat, have maybe experienced something of some of this, that some of the concerns that you're churning away with the first day of the retreat, that you just couldn't get to go away. They're just like, you know, you let go, you try to be in your breath. What breath? And then your mind wanders off in thought, and there's all these concerns. But by the third day, those thoughts, maybe those concerns are receded in importance, don't have this, don't grab and hold you the same way. There's a kind of a settling and calming in the mind. And the similar process goes on in the body, <clears throat> where the body sometimes, you know, has has all this activity in it that's somewhat coarse and it can take the form of tension, holding patterns in the body. And in the course of a retreat like this, there's often a relaxing of those tension, the coarser body, and there's a softening. People often get to be kind of much more beautiful and radiant than usual when they're on retreat because so much of the tension falls away. It's one of our things we've wondered about for, for fundraising for our new retreat centers, whether to relabel <laughs> the retreats and not call them not call it meditation retreats, but but call them beauty spas. <laughs> <laughs> non-surgical facial enhancement. (laughs) (laughs) Facelifts. A lot more people would come. But this movement from coarser to more settled, refined, more active to more peaceful... And many of the lists that Buddha talks about kind of, a little bit kind of practice, kind of follow that trajectory. And I want to offer you one today, which is a, a very classic, important list for the, at least in the early Buddhist tradition. And it seems that it's the list of what's called the five aggregates, or the five khandas, skandhas. And I'm not really sure what this is about. People will tell you they know, but uh, I've gone into the suttas and tried to study this really carefully, and it's not so clear exactly what it is, but <clears throat> but it, you can get close enough to benefit from it. That's all that matters. It seems that the five khandhas, these five aggregates, 
or one useful way of looking at it <coughs> is it's, it's five ways that we get hung up about ourselves. Five ways we get caught in the world of our experience. And the first one <coughs> is form, usually called form is rupa. And, um, but the, the, the most, um, the first and foremost meaning of rupa is visual appearance. As opposed to, uh, you know, all forms. But the first kind of meaning, certainly pre-Buddhist meaning, was visual, uh, vis- uh, uh, visible appearance. What you could see, objects you can see. And at the, you know, you can almost see at the coarsest level, perhaps, of where we people get hung up. People can get hung up about how they look. There's so many ways we get hung up about how we look. And so much comparison, so much suffering and pain people have around how they look. And what's often, what's not often understood, unless you do something like meditation, is the way, the degree to which the suffering around how we look, the concerns with it, involve an activity of the mind. And the activity of the mind is not inherent in many of the things that we're judging or comparing. So some of you know the, <clears throat> the show and tell thing I do when I teach my intro class in meditation, where I hold up a flower. I'll just hold up one flower and have people look at the flower, just the flower. Beautiful flower, just a flower. And then I'll hold up a flower a second flower next to it in my other hand. So I'm holding up two flowers. But the second flower um, is a really small flower compared to the first flower. And now you can say something you couldn't say before. You can say there's the big flower and there's the little flower. And I hold, I hold up the big one and say, big flower? And I hold up the little one and say, little flower? <laughs> and then I'll tell people, now watch, I'm going to do a magic trick. And you can even watch the sleight of hand, how it's done. And um, so I say, remember, this is the big flower and this is the little flower. So then I'll put down the little flower and pick up a really huge, humongous flower. (laughs) (laughs) And hold, and now the first flower is small compared to this humongous flower. So I say, see, now it was big before, now it's small. See how that was done? (laughs) (laughs) It's magic. In other words... <clears throat> big and small is not inherent in the flower. Big and small is an activity of the comparing mind. And it's fine, you know, for a flower, you know, but how about for you? There's you as you are. I am. I'm here, I'm just alive. The wonder of just breathing and being. And then there's all those other people who have different body types, different kinds of things. So 
they're, they're taller than me or shorter than me. And or bigger or thinner or longer here or shorter here or no here or noses. When I was 13, 14, I was preoccupied by the all kinds of body things. But one of them was uh, the, uh, how long my forehead seemed to be from my from my the bridge bridge of my nose all the way up to my hairline and I was concerned I was going bald so I used to since there was nothing else important happening in my classes I would measure with my finger and had a way of measuring because it was so important that it shouldn't be receding at the age of 13. <laughs> or my hair wasn't long enough. Because back then, you know, it was 1967, and my hair is, you know, boys were supposed to have long hair. So I used to pull my hair to make it longer. <laughs> Hope it would get longer, faster, faster. And you know, all this compa- and all this comparative thinking. You know, my genes weren't bleached enough. Like embarrassing, go to, embarrassing to go to school, right? You know, if your genes weren't bleached. So this comparative thinking. So the idea of just being, I amness, was lost in the concern with physical appearance, and it's an activity of the mind, the comparing of the mind. And it can seem so natural and so automatic, and so this is how the universe is built. That this is how you know that completely reasonable comparisons, but they're not. They don't have. You don't. The mind doesn't have to think or be involved in that. And it can be a great relief to be able to relax, just experience yourself from the inside out, without any comparisons, without any judgments, without any idea of image and in fact when you sit down to meditate and close your eyes it's really beautiful when you can just drop all the self image that we tend to carry with us and have an experience of oneself without any image at all so the first meaning of rupa is uh, physical appearance or visible object what you can see the second meaning, which is, became a little more developed as Buddhism got further along, was that rupa meant, um, uh, basically meant contact, the physical sensory contact with the world. So the elements that Andrea talked about on the second day of the retreat, third day of the retreat. And, um, <clears throat> and so you can sit down and rather than seeing yourself or experiencing yourself as image in comparison to others um, you can be aware of actually how the direct contact you have with the world around you the kind of direct experience you have so if you sit here on these cushions when you first sit down the cushion can feel soft you sit here long enough on them a soft cushion feels like cement. And so you feel soft and hardness. Or you feel temperature, hot, cold, windy. 
You, feel, you taste food in your tongue. You feel, so it's a little more subtle, a little more direct and immediate than appearance, which is a more concept. To actually have this contact with the world. But that's a place where sometimes we get hung up on. We get preoccupied. And some people, for example, are are um, um, completely concerned with the sensations they're experiencing. Are they the right sensations? Are they the wrong sensations? Are there better sensations to have? Is, is this now a sens- is this the right sensation for someone meditating? Are there other sensations to be had? How do I get rid of this sensation? And um, <clears throat> it's kind of like whatever the present moment experience directly is, some people are n- never satisfied with anything. I've had this syndrome uh, sometimes in my life that um, no matter what's happening, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. No matter what I'm at, I'm experiencing it. Someone else is having it better somewhere else. This is not good enough. <clears throat> in meditation, it can take the form, this kind of being caught upness in this, in uh, constantly moving and shifting to try to get just the best sensations possible. And then a little bit more subtle, more, I think of these as you go through the five khandas, you're getting closer into yourself, more intimate. You know, the physical image thing is kind of like outer surface concern. And then you have your direct experience of what's happening. And then you can get closer in. And then there's a direct elemental sensory experience you have. But then there's the feeling tone of that, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant. And some people, that's what they get hung up on. And some people are addicted to pleasure and avoidance of discomfort. Some people take it as a personal failing that they feel uncomfortable. They get alarmed. They have some idea that if they're successful in life, they should never have an uncomfortable feeling, ever, sensation ever again. And as I like to say, if you're free only when you're comfortable, you're not really free. <clears throat> to really discover freedom of mind, to really discover how to be at peace in a very profound and meaningful way, we have to also learn how to be at peace, free, when things are uncomfortable, unpleasant. There was a man many years ago who was a retreat with me who had a very unpleasant retreat, very difficult time. And even I was wondering whether he should stay at the retreat, which is pretty radical for me to think that. But I, you know, he had so much faith and so much dedication, was trying so hard, I said, no, I can't tell him to, to leave. It was so, so amazingly, unbearably unpleasant painful, difficult, many physically, psychologically, and everything. And six months later, he came to me and said, Gil, that retreat that I sat was so important for me. 
because I learned how to be with discomfort. It never got better during the retreat, but I learned how to be with discomfort. It turned out over these last six months, I had to go through a lot of difficult things in my life. And because of that retreat, I felt like I had the ability, the patience, the ability to be present, to be open, to be with it. And I was happy for him, and I was even happier that I didn't say anything. Enough is enough. And you should, you know. I would have done him a great disservice. The fact that it's uncomfortable doesn't mean that it's wrong. It might mean that's where the greatest learning is for you. How to be free. And not to be caught by our desire for pleasure. Or caught by our desire to avoid the discomfort. And some people spend their lives spinning in a very agitated way. Chasing pleasure, avoiding discomfort. Staying very busy. And I think it's interesting to analyze a little bit. Probably for all of you. How much of your time in life is made up with making yourself comfortable? How much of your livelihood and income you have is really there to make yourself comfortable. And maybe most of you say, oh, not me. You're pragmatic and matter of fact. But, you know, so you, so maybe you have a house that's larger than it needs to be because it's pleasant. It's nice to be in a house that's pleasant, has a pleasant feeling to it, pleasant location, pleasant view. And so you have to work had a tougher job in order to have that pleasant house. You could have had a you know, quite functional you know, apartment somewhere. There's nothing wrong with the pursuit of pleasure. There's nothing wrong with having a comfortable place to live. There's nothing wrong with working to do that. But it's interesting to go through the analysis to see how much of our life is involved in the pursuit of pleasure, comfort, and I think a lot of people, if they really do the inventory, it turns out to be a lot more than they ever realized. Comfort and pleasure, the pursuit of it and avoiding of discomfort, is one of the primary drives that keeps people moving, active, and then creating whole philosophies of life and themselves and identities and many things. So it's one of the places where people get caught up. The other, the next one is you get closer in. Now you're getting closer in into the mind, in a sense. Into your inner life. <clears throat> and the mental activity, uh, usually translated as perception, sanya. But I, I, I think a better translation because perception is a little it's not so clear what perception means in, the, in English it's close to what we mean by consciousness particular sense consciousnesses but what this word means is closer to what we say and use in English the word in English label or concept this, the, the single concept we have that identifies something for what it is or we think it is 
So for example, you know, you can see this little stand I have in front of me that's holding the microphone. So, so now it's a little, st- I called it a stand. Could it be a small table? In a different situ- uh, situation, this one here, very same thing could be a footstool. And I think it was, it's a flower pot holder. That's what you know, was a flower pot on it before? A plant, a plant, a plant was on it, right? So it, was a, it held a plant here. It's a plant stand or something. It could be, um, um, you know, I've seen some very similar things like this when I was a dairy farmer, where it was a stool for the dairy. When I used to milk the cows, sit on it. So what is it? It's all, it could be all of those things, but the label we assign it, the concept we assign it to, is not inherent in it, but it has to do with how it is being used, or how it's being assigned. And so the mind has a, does a lot of this. So the big flower, small flower. The big is, a, is not inherent in the flower, but it's a label that's added to the flower. Big person, small person. It's a label that's added. And we have a lot of labels for ourselves and for other people. Some of them, it's obvious that they're fluid and can change. You know, in in the course of a day, sometimes I identify myself functionally as a father, sometimes as a husband, sometimes as a friend, sometimes as a teacher, sometimes as a student. And that shifts and changes through the day. But if I get caught by any of those and hold on to one of them, and this is who I truly am, I'm in trouble. It's not like as my wife has said to me, Gil, you're using that voice to me. (laughs) (laughs) And what she means is that now I'm being a teacher at home. You know, I have to leave that teacher thing here with you guys because you guys want me to be a teacher so it's appropriate (laughs) I think I hope (laughs) so it's a label which has some which is convenient and points to something to call myself a teacher but I I try not to be caught by caught up in the teacher teacher label so it's concepts and so there's a lot, we get caught up in a lot of concepts. And again, with concepts, it's, uh, we, we, we swim in the sea of concepts. We don't even see that we've taken them in. We don't even see that we're living by them. Or they seem so patently obvious that this is the way that things are. There's no questioning of it. And the, the problem is when we suffer, because we hold on to the concept. We, we, limit, we are limited. We limit ourselves. Concepts of ourselves, if we hold too tightly to a concept of who we are, we limit ourselves. I had this kind of childhood, therefore I am. We fill in the blank. So if we're limiting, remember for me, in seventh grade, an art teacher came to me and said, <clears throat> she was watching me draw. I was drawing in class. And she, very matter-of-factly, in a very pleasant voice, 
said to me, Gil, you have no arti- no artistic ability. <laughs> and um, I didn't care if I had any artistic ability at all. It never occurred to me. And she was the authority. So I just said, okay. So I, I, that became a concept that I lived with until a freshman in college. I wasn't, I didn't, I didn't actually suffer because of it. I just, that's the nature of the universe. It's built that way. Gil has no artistic ability. And then I had this uh, roommate, my first year in college, who was a born-again artist, <laughs> or a, fun, artist, a fundamentalist artist or something, an evangelical ar- artist. His job was to get everyone to be an artist or something. <laughs> So I started drawing, and I started taking drawing classes and painting classes, and it turned out I had some ability. I certainly enjoyed it a lot. So, you know, I'd internalized something and limited myself. We do that so much. We internalize and limit ourselves. Sometimes it's our headmasters at school that have done, done a really good job for us. Sometimes our parents, sometimes our life experience. We close up. This idea of wonder. I remember when I was in 15, I think. 15. I was sent to boarding school in an amazingly beautiful location high up in the mountains with snow-topped snow mountains and down, <laughs> down below it's beautiful valleys and green and beautiful sky. It was like... It was a reform school, but... <laughs> 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 but the place was beautiful. <laughs> and uh, I was walking down this mountain dirt path with a 17-year-old friend of mine. And I just looked at the sky and the mountains and I just in awe said, you know, I didn't really expect an answer. So I, it was just like this why, you know, why are we here? And my friend turned to me and said, don't be so silly. And as soon as he said that, something inside of me closed. And I wasn't going to show that part of myself to anyone again. It took me years for that part to open up again. Because, you know, that hurt. This concept, oh, I can't show this. This is dangerous. People are going to hurt me. People are not going to like me. And what is happening there was, he had a concept, silly. And his concept, I somehow internalized. I believed it. His comparison, his ideas, his labels. So we live in the world of concepts and labels in a way that's often very painful. And part of what can happen in meditation is we can relax that. Relax, soften, let go. We don't have to live in concepts. We don't have to live in our ideas of things. And it's not easy to relax that level of the mind. But it's possible. It helps if you have some trust that it's okay to let go. It's okay to relax. It's okay just to be. And then, you know, if you take this idea of getting closer in, then closer in than labels and concepts is what's called sankharas, the mental formations. 
And more, I think of it as more the intentions and attitudes that the mind has. All the ways in which the mind gets formed and created around those concepts or with those concepts, with our feelings. Our desires are sankaras. We want something. Or our aversions, we don't want something. Our aspirations, our beautiful aspirations and intentions are sankaras. All our thinking is sankaras. All the mental activity, all kinds of activity going on in there. It's quite deep inside, in our inner life. And as some of you can see, when you sit down to meditate, there are times when the inner life is agitated. It's not settled. Churning away. And it takes a lot of trust, a lot of patience, to sometimes to allow that inner life to relax, to not keep chasing the thoughts, the ideas, the concerns, to not keep chasing the desires and aversions that we have in the mind. And to let the inner life, the inner thinking, the inner life, to soften, calm down, to begin attuning itself to I am, to begin begin attuning itself to just to be here, not needing to do anything, not needing to figure anything out, make anything happen. And then we get closer in still, and the last of these five aggregates is consciousness. And the way this is usually described is that it's the most basic perception or registering or most most simple, most basic kind of a knowing of each thing that occurs at the sense doors. So there's eye consciousness, which is the most simple kind of perception, most simple registering. It doesn't involve labels, oh, you I hear the sound of the bird. Bird is the label, the concept. <laughs> is the consciousness just you know comes in and just that sound is there. So there's hearing consciousness, there's there's eye consciousness, there's nose consciousness tongue consciousness each of the senses and so there's five ordinary senses eyes ears nose tongue and then the tactile sense and then in Buddhism there's a sixth sense which is this the the organ of perception or consciousness in the mind that knows the inner life If you have a thought, you can know that. You can be aware of it. So here is an amazing statement I'm going to offer you. I'm hoping it's a kind of like, wow, statement. I hope it's a statement like, like, why? Amazing. Or that just leaves you just with M. There's nothing more to do. (laughs) I hope it doesn't leave you confused. But listen to this statement. 
at any given time, there are only six things happening. Six things and only six things happening. Nothing else. It's that simple, your life. Your life is made up of only six experiences. That's all it is. Those six things are seeing something, hearing something, smelling something, tasting something, feeling something tactically, and then knowing something on the inside as it's occurring. More than that, nothing else is happening. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that kind of like mind-bending a little bit? Like, what? Well, it can't be. My life is so complicated. I have to pay taxes. <laughs> I have to get up in the morning and set the alarm clock. And How does it mean nothing else is going on, you know? Does this mean I don't have to go to my yogi job? <laughs> nothing, you know, just... In the world of our direct experience, everything we experience happens through those six doors. But we get lost, we get caught up in the thoughts, the ideas, the labels, the, the opinions we have about things, the stories we tell ourselves about it all. And to allow the mind It's fine to have stories. It's fine to have opinions. And they have their time and place in their life to have those. But there's also a time to give yourself a vacation. And I like the word, I use the word vacation choicely because it's amazing how much, how the tremendous authority our thinking mind claims for itself. It's so desperately important to figure out our life problems or the issues. I mean, I can't put anything, you can't put it to rest. But, you know, you're allowed a vacation. In America, you're not allowed very much vacation. (laughs) So, you know, you don't have to give yourself a big vacation, but at least, you know, every day for 45 minutes, sit down and meditate. Give yourself a vacation where you try not to be so caught up in those worlds of thinking and, and let yourself, if you want to come to a rest and give yourself a vacation, it's a, it works actually easier if you come and get curious or involved in that primary level of experience where every, that builds upon which everything else is built. So when there's a sound, know the sound. But you don't have to get involved in analyzing the sound and thinking about it and fixing a sound. Just a sound. The teacher on the retreat has to get up and leave in the middle of a sitting. Isn't that outrageous? Coughing like crazy. You know, how could I have gotten this kind of teacher? Doesn't the teacher know? The teacher shouldn't have come. You know, my precious, my precious meditation. Or, oh, that poor teacher. I hope he's okay. 
and the mind spins off, right? Make stories. Or just just hear the cough. Hearing, hearing. Hear the rustle, hearing. It can be that simple. And if something very powerful happens, extremely powerful happens in the mind, in the heart, in the inner life, when you give yourself the chance to let your experience be really simple. Really simple. So just hearing now. Just tasting, smelling, seeing, feeling, touching. When there's a thought or a feeling, to just, not to get involved in the story or the thought, but almost as if there's like, you know, this very simple capacity in the mind to know, oh, a thought. It's almost like you can step back and watch thinking happen as you register, as consciousness knows there's thinking, there's a story going on, there's an emotion. Keep it really simple. It's not easy to do <clears throat> because of the strong habits we have. And it's completely okay to have strong habits. You're not a bad person because you get caught up. You're not a wrong person. If you get caught in stories and caught in your attachments and think a lot, uh, the primary thing it proves to me is that you're human, which I've, you know, that's my expectation of all of you. <laughs> okay. But to begin questioning, maybe the why or what, or wow, or I am, or amness, to be willing to see, can you get how simple can you get here, here and now, this moment. Let's sit quietly for a few moments. Mm -hmm. 